Welcome to the East Asia Hotspots podcast, where we invite you to join us for chats with experts and scholars from around the world to talk about contemporary issues in East Asia. I'm the lead facilitator, Richard Haddock, with the George Washington University. Support of this podcast comes from the U.S. Department of Education's Title VI grant for East Asian Studies at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Our partners at the Elliott School that help make this podcast happen are the Seeger Center for Asian Studies and the GW Institute for Korean Studies. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the speakers alone and do not reflect the position of the NRC. Through these podcasts, we want to encourage dialogue about diverse perspectives in East Asian studies. Check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu for all our podcast episodes and info about East Asian studies at the George Washington University. Now, let's start the conversation. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to our uh, newest episode of the East Asia Hotspots podcast. And I have with me an incredibly special guest, uh, Digital Minister of Taiwan, Audrey Tang. Uh, she's the first openly transgender government minister in the world. Minister Tang is known for revitalizing the computer languages Perl and Haskell, as well as building the online spreadsheet system EtherCal in collaboration with Dan Bricklin. In the public sector, Minister Tong served on the Taiwan National Development Council's Open Data Committee and the K-12 Curriculum Committee, and led Taiwan's first e-rulemaking project. In the private sector, Minister Tong worked as a consultant with Apple on computational linguistics, with Oxford University Press on crowd lexicography, and with social text on social interaction design. Minister Tong actively contributes to Taiwan's GovZero, a vibrant community focusing on creating tools for the civil society with the call to fork the government. Minister Tang, thank you so much for joining us. And hello world, uh, and really happy to be on this podcast. Great, thanks. So let's dive into the questions here. So Minister Tang, you've been an important contributor to the incredible work on digital democracy and civic tech fronts in Taiwan. From GovZero to hosting hackathons to creating new and innovative platforms such as vTaiwan that allow citizens to be a part of the governmental decision-making process. You have also been an advocate for implementing an open government model using these kinds of tools. What is open government and how is it part of Taiwan's contemporary national narrative? In Taiwan, in 2013, if you ask a random people on the street that whether the government will offer a lot of participatory budgeting, whether you can walk uh, to a minister's office and have 40 minutes of her time, and uh, as long as the transcript is online, or whether there will be a working e-petition system that has half of the populations participating, and they'll look at you and think you're crazy. And so it's a really new thing in Taiwan. Uh, it's only until the our movement, which is when we occupied the parliament for 22 days in March 2014, did a real demonstration of the open government principles. The demonstration is not a protest, it's a demo in the sense of showing the viability of half a million people on the street and many more online can deliberate substantially on a complex uh, agreement called a cross-trade service and trade agreement when the legislators were on strike, uh, refusing to deliberate that in substance. And so 
the 20 NGOs, each serving as kind of leading an aspect of that CSSTA discussion, eventually discovered that if you use the facilitation skills, right, if you use the computational linguistic skills, that can make sure that uh, um, people's ideas form a convergent whole, uh, what we call a rough consensus, allowing the most convergent voices to emerge rather than the divergent points. If you design the systems so that it attracts people to consensus rather than distracts people into uh, the divisiveness, then you don't have uh, to facilitate that much because people can facilitate themselves and determine what is important. For example, at that time, the 4G telecommunication uh, base stations was one of the hotspots uh, for the conversation and that's how the people on the street eventually reached agreement with people in the government that were not allowing PRC components in our 4G base stations and infrastructures which is a conversation that's repeated five years in the future from that time uh, for 5G networks and so um, that proves that internet is not only good for disseminating voices as radio and televisions are but rather it's also a great tool when used correctly to listen at scale and have millions of people listen to one another and that's my vision of open government is the government going to where people are and listen at scale rather than asking people to conform to any particular technology. I know that speaks volumes to me personally about collaborative uh, government and civil society relations. So for the next uh, question here, in what ways do you think technology can or should be used to enhance civic participation, accountability, and the overall democratic experience, not only in Taiwan, but also the United States and the world? And how does globalization of information technology impact these trends? Mm -hmm. So four years ago, when I first became digital minister, our HR, because there was no position as a digital minister uh, in the Taiwan cabinet, asked me what do I envision a digital minister's work uh, is. And I wrote a small prayer, a poem, that's actually my job description, and which speaks uh, to this question. So I'll just recite my job description uh, at first. It looks like this. When we see Internet of Things, let's make it an Internet of Beings. When we see virtual reality, let's make it a shared reality. When we see machine learning, let's make it collaborative learning. When we see user experience, let's make it about human experience. And whenever we hear that the singularity is near, let us always remember the plurality is here. So a plural version, a transcultural version of open government is what we in Taiwan uh, has been striving uh, for the past four years, five years now. Uh, very simply put, it is a way to have more than one uh, way to do democracy. Anyone anywhere in Taiwan who want to have a new way to do democracy can try it out and having a lot of support as social innovators across 12 ministries. All they have to do is to walk into my office and talk to me for 30 minutes at a time or to hold a local town hall where we dial in using Zoom, uh, using uh, telecommunication from five minutes municipalities, or they can raise a petition and collect 5,000 signatures and ensure a face-to-face -face conversation with ministerial uh, buy-in, or they can participate in a presidential hackathon where every year we give out five trophies that promises to implement their prototypes within a year uh, from the presidential mandate. And so all these new ways to do democracy is no longer about you know voting, which is maybe five bits of information uploaded per person every four years, but rather it is about every day 
day democracy where people can first share the same reality, understanding what the reality is in a policymaking context, and then bring out their new innovations without taking apart anybody's trial and errors. Because we say that we absorb the risk even within the career public service if they trace something out for a year and it fails. As long as it fails publicly, they're accountable for it. Then everybody actually learn more about it. So that's why we also introduced a sandbox model where you can try self-driving vehicles, 5G,、um, platform economy, fintech, you name it,、uh, within a continental law system. We're the first continental law system to introduce such innovations within the legal system. That's actually, I think, a very powerful prayer that you、uh, mentioned as well. And I remember reading it off of、uh, your profiles and. The, the great、uh, Yield scholar Tocqueville once said that、uh, United States is this、uh, experimental laboratory for democracy, and I'm very happy to see that Taiwan now is、uh, a leader for this kind of experimental techniques about what democracy means, what it is, who can be a part of it, and what the future looks like as well. So this is all just、uh, really coming together in a very fascinating, positive way in Taiwan. Related to this,、uh, the confluence of technology and governance can generate some very optimistic possibilities,、uh, such as V Taiwan, and also I think、uh, Cofax as、mm-hmm. well.、Uh, th- this kind of how do you uh, defend uh,、mm-hmm. or be responsible for democracy?、Mm-hmm. But there's also some very、uh, disconcerting and even Orwellian applications,、uh, as we are witnessing in Xinjiang and in the public discourse about the ethical limits of technology use. What are the current and future challenges that you and others face in the digital and open governance space? And what, if any, are the limits that you're running into when you're trying to create this open government? Right, so digital doesn't automatically mean open,、uh, as you witnessed. That it could also very much mean closed. Digital is a great amplifier. If you want to make the state transparent to the citizens, as we do, it amplifies that. But if you want to make citizens transparent to the state, it also amplifies that.、Mm. And so all, it all depends on the configuration of a civic space. The more civic space there is, the less likely that it will turn Orwellian. The less civic space there is. It will actually enable the state to feel into this perpetual sense of insecurity, and it will take every opportunity to deploy more technology that shrinks the civic space even more, as we see in the PRC. And so, I think the main challenge or the main limit、uh, that we're running into is just. People kind of take technology like buzzwords like Internet of Things,、um, virtual reality, machine learning, and so on, and kind of by default think them as good.、Uh, you see that in a lot of so-called smart city narratives, as if like a city being smart while leaving the citizens stumber is a good thing.、Uh, <laughs> so we're all for smart citizens, not not necessarily for smart cities.、Um, and so、um, I think if you get the values right, if you get the design and facilitation right in the First principles, then you can very easily see that digital technology can amplify these values. But on the other hand, if you start your values by saying that、um, the government doesn't trust the citizen, but nevertheless expect the citizen to trust back, it is a paradoxical expectation to begin with, and then you will deploy more and more perverse technologies. I like that distinction too between a smart city and smart citizen. And back to the prayer that you mentioned too. It's these fine lines about what technology means, but never forgetting the humanity within that、uh, technology use. So the Taiwan presidential and legislative elections recently concluded, and much of the world, at least here in D.C., 
watched closely how the digital spaces would be used, or misused, as an interactive space for individuals, organizations, and political campaigns. Mis- and disinformation campaigns are now part of an ever-growing lexicon of techniques that various actors, maligned or otherwise, may employ in swaying the digital hearts and minds of citizens and voters. What is your assessment of Taiwan's digital sovereignty and its ability to preserve the integrity of information dissemination in this past election cycle? And how can states, societies, uh, in your view, work together to maintain and use digital spaces responsibly during elections, but also generally in the governance process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I view disinformation in a more epidemic uh, metaphor rather than a warfare metaphor, like it is intentional harmful uh, to the public uh, untruths uh, that try to sow discord in people's cognitive space so that they stop talking to people with different positions and thereby taking away the main idea of liberal democracy, which is a market, free market of ideas, right? If people only share their ideas uh, with people already holding pretty much the same idea, uh, then this marketplace of ideas um, dissipates and become filter bubbles. So instead of sovereignty, which is more of a territorial warfare uh, metaphor, I usually say digital resilience. That is to say, just as there are new virus, like literally uh, happening every year. Um, what we're trying to do is to discover uh, vaccines uh, that can inoculate against particular forms of ideological or mimetic uh, virus that so discord uh, in the citizenry. For example, uh, very popularly during the mirror election, uh, were this kind of virus of the mind, uh, ideological packages that basically evoke outrage from the citizenry by showing them a, um, just a random photo of someone suffering injustice, not actually from the government, but captioned as if it's from the government uh, suffering great government injustice and things like that. And because people feel helpless uh, and insecure after seeing such a picture, they would not bother then uh, to fact-check its uh, content, but rather just reach for the nearest positive experience, which is clicking share, because that turns this personal anger into group outrage, which feels positive. Uh, and we found that the, uh, the best way uh, to counteract such disinformation campaigns is not takedown, because takedown tend to actually uh, make people even angrier, mm-hmm. uh, nor is it kind of just government press release that denounce the people who spread such messages, which pushes them even further away. Uh, rather, uh, we, f- we hire professional comedians in each and every ministry to roll out uh, funny messages, humorous messages that make fun of the ministers themselves, even the prime minister and in clarification of those messages and that are um, individually just funny videos and funny pictures. And so when people associate, for example, all of our um, central committee for disease management, for disease control, the CDC messages are now uh, just prefaced by a dog, a spokes dog uh, for the CDC uh, and their um, handsomely dressed uh, dog. And it's uh, fitting into the dog meme. Uh, And so (laughs) basically all our coronavirus 
countermeasures, um, public information and clarifications are now dog uh, related. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you laugh, and that, that means that you will not actually be provoked into outrage the next time that you, you, you hear such disinformation propaganda. And so because we, we found that fun and human actually also vent this uh, energy of anger uh, without going into this vicious cycle of personal attacks or some kind of outrage against specific like Minister of Health and Welfare, right? And so because of that, it serves as a really good vaccine against that particular strain of disinformation. And I can go on, but that is the basic idea. We develop vaccines, we inoculate the citizenry by rapid response. So using this uh, comparison or analogy about inoculation, vaccination, uh, this healing process, I think is a, is a very powerful analogy for this case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I publicly endorsed a, a party that did not uh, actually run in the legislative election this time, although they do have a city councilor in Taipei City, and the name is in Mandarin, Huanle Wufa Dang, or literally the very happy party. Uh, uh, <laughs> and its official English name is, quote, can't stop this party, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> and all its founding members are uh, professional comedians. Certainly the ones with the... Uh, hottest uh, takes or most astute observations about our societies. That's really great. With Dr. Tsai Ing-wen being re-elected to serve as president for a second term, uh, what are your priorities for the next four years for Taiwan's digital spaces, including carrying out the uh, Digital, National, and Innovative Economic Development Program, or DigiPlus, for 2017 to 2025? Do you foresee any major challenges in carrying out these priorities? So just to recap, the main uh, deliverable in the DigiPlus uh, in the past four years uh, has been broadband uh, as human right, meaning that no matter where you are in Taiwan, even on the top, um, like the 4,000 meters almost, of uh, the peak of the Yushan uh, mountain, everybody now have 10 megabits per second at 15 euros per month, unlimited 4G connection uh, at 98% coverage, and we're working on the remaining 2% using helicopters. And in any case, if you don't have that kind of broadband access, it's my fault. And so we actually delivered on broadband as human right. We also delivered on a media competency uh, in K-12 education so that anybody anywhere in Taiwan, a lifelong learner of any age starting from seven years old, um, can actually access the same material as a journalist would use uh, for basic ideas of journalism training, like fact-checking, and framing and all these different ideas because we know that children nowadays are no longer media consumers only. They are all media producers. They are famous YouTubers um, <laughs> who are 10 years old or 11 years old, right? And because of that, everybody needs to learn what being a media means uh, in the digital age so that uh, you can have a vibrant civil society without suffering uh, the kind of divisiveness and polarization uh, that people who don't learn about journalism and go on being very influential YouTubers uh, kind of do uh, in liberal uh, democracies. And so these are, I think, a really good achievement that we did in the past four years and that uh, enabled a participatory democracy without leaving anybody behind. Because if we leave, uh, for example, any township behind in terms of broadband and education, then none of our open government uh, digital democracy effort will hold in legitimacy for that town township. So we have to do the basics right. For the next four years, 
years, we're looking into establishing a digital council or a digital ministry, um, which is a new organization in the cabinet level uh, that take care of the digital era issues, such as uh, protecting the human rights, the what we call data dignity, uh, the dignity of people as producers of data. Uh, we're at the moment kind of like in the era uh, before labor union is um, invented, so that every uh, single data producer vis-a-vis -a -vis, uh, large data corporations uh, have minuscule bargaining power uh, and we're looking to correct that um, using the same principles as the early cooperatives as uh, the data collective coalitions and bargaining so that for example in Taiwan uh, primary school teachers often teach about data stewardship by teaching the way of measuring air quality and water quality now using very cheap like less than 100 US dollars uh, measurement devices that sends to a shared people's distributed ledger um, the completely picture of air and water quality. And because they're so powerful and so distributed, they actually have higher legitimacy than the environment minister. So the environment <laughs> minister, uh, of course, can't beat them. Uh, they're primary school teachers, right? So uh, they have to join uh, the primary school teachers, the, the last network in the airbox uh, civic tech. And because of that, they ask, okay, we can share our ledger with you, but we ask you to install into the industrial box our uh, measurement devices because uh, we would also like to learn whether they contribute to air pollution. So it turns out that the government owns the lamp in the industrial parks. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a great uh, illustration of uh, a governance uh, done in the civil society endorsed but not controlled, not appropriated by the government, and then together working with the private sector to further the sustainable goals on climate action and on uh, water and uh, land life protection uh, without any single party having this kind of top-down control as we're so used to in data silos and multinational data corporations. So that model is what we're uh, looking to replicate and scale out in the next four years uh, with the Digital Council or Ministry. That sounds fantastic. Actually, I'm curious to hear, uh, what are the actors involved in the cultivating digital literacy, especially in the K through 12 landscape? I know when I was a, a student here, this uh, this conversation about integrating technology in the classrooms just started to to develop in a very exciting way. And uh, I wonder now too uh, if Taiwan works with other countries or exports uh, some of its thoughts about uh, digital literacy at the K through 12 level. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, we just rolled out uh, last year the new curriculum, uh, which is very different from every other curriculum before it, because we switched into a, a core competency model that put uh, less emphasis, I would say almost no emphasis, on uh, uh, memorization or on standardized answers or on the teachers holding the uh, quote authority unquote, uh, over students, and instead uh, the teachers are now just co-learners. And this idea of co-learning is very important, especially for the people who are in the rural, indigenous, or remote places, because uh, through broadband as human rights, they can easily connect to other classrooms in other municipalities uh, and shaping the two classrooms using wall-sized projectors, for example, or large um, screens uh, to feel that they are in the same physical space and participating in a larger class, uh, while uh, learning skills that are useful and applicable to solve their learning 
local problems. And so the municipal students actually get a feeling of what, for example, uh, the agriculture situation uh, looks like, and they can co-design, for example, a drone that sprays uh, more responsibly um, the, for agricultural products, for example, and fertilizers. Uh, and so basically, uh, this kind of um, what we call co-teaching uh, across uh, the municipal and rural spaces is a really powerful way to teach digital literacy because then it is not just like any other second language that you need to learn, like uh, learn JavaScript as your second language, <laughs> but, but rather it is a way uh, that invites yourself into real social problems, real environmental problems, real e uh, economic problems uh, in real places with real people that you develop uh, your socialization throughout K-12 as uh, virtual but not so virtual classmates. Um, and so that kind of co-teaching is really booming in Taiwan, and I think that is a model that inherently transcends cultural boundaries. And so we're happy to work with, with anyone uh, who has a good fiber optic link. Definitely an important uh, piece of tech for that. And I can see how this can cultivate, as you mentioned, a digital stewardship and to be able to connect with uh, your fellow uh, citizens, just humans, really, not only uh, nationwide, but also internationally. So I can see a lot of good coming out of this. Uh, so the World Health Organization recently confirmed Taiwan's participation in a two-day forum in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, held yesterday and today, actually, February 11th through 12th. Uh, this year that will bring medical researchers and experts together from different countries to produce a global research agenda, including the development of vaccines and medications for the novel coronavirus. Taiwanese ex experts will participate in the forum online. And this reminds me of when you participated in the UN's annual Internet Governance Forum a few years back in 2017 using a uh, telepresence robot, which I thought was ingenious, so that you could contribute to the global discussion on how developing nations can improve their Internet connectivity and infrastructure. From these experiences, how do you see the role of technology in connecting societies and nations across the world evolving? How can the use of technology reframe the discussion of international representation. The telepresence robot, of course, as you pointed out, doesn't need a visa, uh, it doesn't need a passport to enter, uh, and it's not representing me, it's re-presenting me. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> that's good, that's good. Like right, that. It's not a, a, a trusted intermediary, right? It is uh, <laughs> literally a video that's recorded a second ago, uh, or half a second if the connection is good. So, in any case, what I'm trying to say is that uh, this kind of re presentation as we observe in the WHO meetings uh, where the experts participate just as themselves. They don't uh, have any country affiliations and it's not just for Taiwan experts. Everybody uh, joined this Zoom call uh, just using their names. Um, and this is actually a really good and also symbolic way uh, for multi-stakeholderism because previously multi-stakeholder meetings uh, when it's coexisting with uh, multilateral associations such as WHO and the UN system, they always have to exist in a kind of sidetrack to the main track that is multilateral, that is state representatives, and then maybe some CSOs, maybe some academics, and so on in the kind of NGO seats, or now they call it major group seats, which is better. Uh, but in any case, they are kind of on the periphery of the core multilateral model. But now, because on the internet, everybody has the same screen size, um, it is very difficult actually to make a seat arrangement 
government that somehow highlights multilateral as the core and multi-stakeholder <laughs> as the periphery. Um, everybody's just speaking for themselves, quite literally there. Uh, and uh, I think this is for, for the best. We he- held the virtual island summit in conjunction with the East uh, Caribbean um, islands. And uh, at each island uh, sent someone to talk uh, through this entirely virtual conference. We also have the agenda, we have the MC, we have the panel discussions, we have everything, except that we don't have a venue, right? The venue is entirely online. So I spoke about Taiwan and somebody from Penghu Pescador Island spoke for their island. And so again, this is very different, right? We're not saying Taiwan and Penghu together is a, you know, Republic of Citizens, <laughs> but rather we talk about the two islands as, you know, just features, right? And, and how the climate change is going to affect those different islands and each island uh, talk about these islands. So it feels as if that these islands are, are now speaking through us. Um, and this, again, challenges the traditional idea of Westphalian sovereignty, which is very human-centric. And so in addition of saying that uh, we cost zero carbon footprint by holding the virtual island summit, <laughs> it is also a, a much safer way now, given the novel coronavirus, um, compared to international travel and jet lag. And also you can, with high uh, bandwidth connection, you can actually now see much more of the micro-expression that builds the report that's needed uh, for face-to-face conversations and definitely more uh, than if you're uh, the person you're talking with is wearing a mask. Definitely, I can see uh, all these benefits to uh, kind of representing how people decide to represent themselves, uh, communities around them, and to connect with communities all over the world. What you mentioned before about the, the Virtual Island Summit, it, it's I think a very powerful tool to connect uh, between uh, different uh, peoples and nations, societies. Do you see that Taiwan cooperates with the uh, United States or other uh, multi-stakeholders around the world in co-learning, co-teaching, and perhaps uh, co-expressing this uh, new interpretations of the technology and humanity? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's uh, more than 10 global cooperation and training frameworks uh, this year, uh, and it's no longer bilateral like U.S.-Taiwan only. Uh, we have Japan as the third uh, steady host, and every GCTF we invite a fourth uh, rotating jurisdiction as the kind of fourth rotating host. For example, for um, sustainable management uh, of materials, uh, ACA circular economy, if you're from Netherlands, that uh, marine debris and so on, and that uh, Netherlands is the rotating chair. And we actually are very intentional in designing them to align with the sustainable development goals because this is a decade of action, right? We, we have 10 years to get it right across the globe. And these are kind of pre-vetted goals uh, back in 2015. Everybody agreed on delivering on those goals, including broadband as human right, which is to be delivered this year. So uh, we're kind of ahead of the curve and happy to help. Uh, but in any case, what I'm trying to say is that given these shared goals, um, it is kind of a safe space for mini-lateral uh, configurations as the GCTF to experiment with more of this kind of telepresence uh, way of working across different jurisdictions and also build solidarity between people of different jurisdictions by getting into the habit of listening across space and with people who are virtually yeah. Yeah, thanks actually for mentioning the uh, global cooperation and training framework. I think that's a great platform to 
explore uh, what you mentioned about mini-lateralism. It started off uh, 2015 as primarily a U.S.-Taiwan cooperation to utilize experts in the United States and in Taiwan uh, with third countries to discuss issues such as public health, uh, women's economic empowerment, uh, digital economy. And now it's grown uh, these past few years into something incredibly powerful and that many people across the world can uh, be connected with. And as you mentioned, uh, Japan is now part of this and uh, Netherlands. And exciting to see how this platform and others like it will evolve in the near future. So for those of us uh, interested in learning more about open government and Taiwan's role as a leader in the digital democracy space, how do you suggest listeners can get involved in the e-governance process? What were the tools and resources you used along your personal journey down this path? Yeah, we publish everything. I still publish to Social Archive, the preprint server, even as digital minister. So you can read it um, on Social Archive about Taiwan. But uh, if you're less academic-minded, uh, there is a very accessible uh, set of tools called Crowd Law, done by the Governance Lab at the NYU, led by um, Beth uh, Simone uh, Novak, professor at NYU. And if you just Google for Crowd Law, I think you'll find uh, the newly released, actually, they released it a couple of weeks ago, uh, toolkit that uh, shared not only V Taiwan as this uh, problem identification phase, but actually across the entire life cycle of the governance processes. There's always touch points where this kind of intentional use of digital technology based on the principle of human-centered uh, service design can improve the quality, not just the participation itself as instrumental value, but really the quality of the um, rules that gets made in this way. So I encourage you to Google for crowd law and if you have any questions, I'm accessible on Twitter at Audrey T. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us. I know I've learned a lot more about uh, not only open governance and how uh, technology can be a powerful tool for people to connect with each other uh, across the world, but also kind of what it means to be human in this uh, technology wave of uh, development and governance. So thank you so much, Minister Tong, for uh, stopping by and chatting with us. Thank you for the great conversation. Thank you for listening in to our podcast episode. For more information about this episode and all our other episodes, be sure to check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu and subscribe to our email list to get the latest on upcoming episodes. If you have a recommendation on a topic or expert to interview for a future podcast episode, please send us your ideas via email to gweanrc at gwu.edu. Lastly, we'd like to thank our sponsors for all their support in making this podcast happen. But most importantly, we want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time. Oh, 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 oh